Well, here we are, Margaret. I've got a question. I know you have an illustrious career, uh, important uh, publisher, dealt with many fascinating and uh, culturally vital people. But what I would like to ask you about is Bexhill on Sea. <laughs> uh, because you went to school in Bexhill, didn't you? I did. I went to a very interesting international school called Charters Towers School for Girls. Char- well, it didn't have the for girls, but it was Charters Towers. Where, um, uh, um, on Hastings uh, Road. On Hastings Road. Yes. Uh, admittedly, now uh, listeners, regular listeners will know we normally talk about Croydon, but I'm I'm <laughs> trying to annex Bex Hill now into the backlisted uh, <laughs> canon, and um, because my family comes from that part of the world, oh. and so when I saw that you've been to school uh, there, so it was in Hastings Road, and it did you would you go to the would you go on outings to the De La Loire Pavilion? We certainly did go there. <laughs> I, th- I think we had our annual s- speech day there and did our school did plays there. Did you? Did you like school that. plays there? Had lectures from eminent people who went to there. And, like Bronowski, did you say? Joseph Bronowski, I think. People like that. Played the Delaware Pavilion. <laughs> There's a thought. And did you... Um, and what, and did, was there a good library in Bexhill then? Or was there a good school library? Or... I can't remember too much about libraries, but I can remember we, we certainly were provided with daily newspapers. I remember when it changed from the Daily Telegraph to the, to the Guardian. But I also had a way of discovering things in the local news agents, and I, I found this wonderful literary magazine, literary journal called John of London's Weekly. And I used to write them letters about all sorts of things. They didn't know they'd be dealing with a schoolgirl. But I also... <laughs> I, I one, one week, I, I got an issue of it on which there was a, a, a picture on the front cover of Noni Jabavu, a mm. South African writer who was having her, her book reviewed in it. And I think she also went on to, to uh, be an editor of... Uh, journals like The Strand, but it was that image of an African woman on the yeah. front of a literary magazine that kind of gave me the inspiration that I could be part of the British literary field. So and there that, you go. And that nice. was from a shop in Bexhill. That was from there you go. school at Bexhill, in Bexhill, Charters Towers. Tiny acorns. We put Bexhill on sea on the literary map. <laughs> Hooray. Um, and uh, sites on the literary map. Uh, uh, I ha- that was smooth, wasn't it? <laughs> right. I happen to know that you have moved from Hackney to... Uh, where are you living at the moment? Bloomsbury. <laughs> Fancy pants, Bloomsbury. <laughs> well, very um, appropriate for a poet. I mean, yeah. I I was actually going to move back to Hackney. I was looking for a place to rent, and I saw that the... Because uh, this was just at the very end of the pandemic, and I was like, oh, wait, the rents have all flattened. Like it's the same, incredible. Same to rent a place in Hackney as it is to rent a place in Bloomsbury. <laughs> Hello, Bloomsbury. At that point, probably not now. But like, I, I kind of had a golden window there. Blue plaques everywhere. Oh man. <laughs> so yeah. So I get to kind of walk my son through the literary landscape of Bloomsbury every day, um, which I can't wait. To. I've already, I've already written about it. I've already got like stuff about you know Tagore and Virginia Woolf and all these poets and is he and like, is he a nursery is he in a Bloomsbury nursery he's in a Bloomsbury daycare centre <laughs> it's, it's just like Charleston Farmhouse let's start we should hello and welcome to Backlisted the podcast that gives new life to old books today you find us downstairs in a West Indian nightclub in London's Oxford Circus in the late 50s Sunday evening, 
There's a table of GIs in the corner, petting and sweating. The lager and scotch is flowing and the scent of Old Spice and Wrigley's gum fills the air. Johnny, the tall barman, has an amused, detached look on his face. It's approaching 10.30 as he starts to call last orders. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, a platform where readers crowdfund books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And today we're joined by two guests making their backlisted debuts, Margaret Busby and Raymond Anchibus. Hello! (laughs) Raymond Anchibus is a poet, writer, educator and investigator of missing sounds. He is the author of To Sweet and Bitter, The Perseverance and most recently All the Names Given, published by Picador in the UK and Tin House in the US. In 2019, he became the first ever poet to be awarded the Rathbone Folio Prize for Best Work of Literature in any genre. Other accolades include the Ted Hughes Award, PBS Winter Choice, a Sunday Times Young Writer of the Year Award, and the Guardian Poetry Book of the Year. His debut children's book, Can Bears Ski, spoilers, I reckon they can, (laughs) (laughs) illustrated by Polly Dunbar, was published last year in the UK by Walker Books and in the US and Canada by Candlewick Press. His poems, Jamaican British, The Perseverance and Happy Birthday Moon were added to the UK's GCSE syllabus in 2019. So before you know it, your son will be studying your work (laughs) with huge pleasure. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure. (laughs) It's amazing. How do you get notified of that, right? How does that happen? One day you just check your email and it's like, hi, you put your poems on the Jesse National <laughs> Curriculum. Wow. I, you know, and do, you I was, a, do you get a royalty? Uh, it's, it's very small. But it's funny because I, I immediately thought of, who was it? Was it Adrian Mitchell who said, oh God, there's no way, that's the last thing I want for my poetry. <laughs> you, know, you know, kids being, being you know, uh, forced. forced. Oh, yeah. <laughs> not, not more Roman entrepreneurs. Oh, great. <laughs> and we're also joined today by Margaret Busby, CBE. She's a legendary publisher, editor, writer and broadcaster. In 1967, she became Britain's youngest and first black female book publisher when she co-founded with Clive Allison the Soho-based publishing house Allison and Busby, which she ran for 20 years, counting Bukti Amechta, Naruddin Farrar, C.L.R. James, Michael Moorcock and Jill Murphy, among them all. Michael Moorcock and Jill Murphy. <laughs> no, not often together. the same sentence. Um, <laughs> I'd also got to thank uh, Margaret personally on the spot right now for changing my life by <laughs> republishing my favourite book, Absolute Beginners by Colin McInnes, which uh, you brought back into print in 1979 or 1980, mm-hmm. along with McInnes's other London novels, and influenced uh, me and I'm sure mm-hmm. generations of... It was all, young British read readers. In, in that, in that, but in let, me, let me tell you something about that, because we, we published that. I think it was... 1980, we published those three London novels, Absolute Beginners, City of Spades, and Mr. Love and Justice. And it was the books were out for a while. They hadn't, yeah, they'd been reviewed, but they hadn't sold brilliantly. And then there was one review, I think it was in the NME, New Musical Express. And it was after that review, things took off. So that's one of the only times you could say, well, that one review had an influence. Mm. The film rights sold and so on and so on. You know, I am an old so-and-so, but I will say that if you grew up in the 1980s, one of the great lucky things you had was that books were covered everywhere. Totally. And enemy enemy book reviews were really, really important. Margaret, 
edited the groundbreaking anthology Daughters of Africa in 1992 and its follow-up New Daughters of Africa, published by Myriad Editions in 2019. A long-time campaigner for diversity in publishing, she is the recipient of many awards, including the Benson Medal from the Royal Society of Literature in 2017. And in 2020, she was voted one of the 100 Great Black Britons and last year was awarded the London Book Fair Lifetime Achievement Award. Amazing. I'm thrilled we're joined by Antropus and Busby. That just has such a nice, just has such a nice ring to it. We love it. We love it. OK, and the writer we're here to discuss is Andrew Sulky, one of the major figures in late 20th century Caribbean writing and whose poetry was published by Margaret in the early 1980s. Raymond has chosen his second novel, Escape to an Autumn Pavement, as the main book for discussion. It was first published by Hutchinson in 1960 and reissued in 2009 by the brilliant People Tree Press. It concerns the attempts of the Jamaican Johnny Sobert to make his way in the London of the late 1950s, a city still reeling from the depredations of war. But we'll also be discussing Sulky's poetry, much of it sadly now out of print, particularly the long poem uh, Jamaica. And also Sulky's position among the remarkable group of Caribbean writers that arrived in London in the 1950s. But before we catch the number 13 bus to Soho, Andy, what have you been reading this week? Thank you. Uh, I'm going to talk about a book called All the Sad Songs by a writer and illustrator called Summer Pierre. And this was published in 2018 by retrofit comics and big planet comics and it's a graphic memoir not graphic in its uh, <laughs> explicitness but using but, pictures uh, yeah yeah not not a graphic novel but a graphic memoir summer pierre is a former i think former musician and songwriter and uh, she's the author of paper pencil life and she had a thing in a wonderful thing in the new yorker called Sylvia Plath's Last Plan, uh, which you can find online, and I, I commend to you. But this is a book, I won't lie to you, listeners, if you're a member of Generation X and uh, were around in the 1990s and paying attention, then you're very much going to enjoy this memoir. It's about somebody talking about what music meant to them in their 20s, and initially it's about mixtapes, or as British 50-somethings know them, compilation tapes. Because <laughs> let history be clear, no one called them mixtapes no, so back true. then. They didn't, did they? Mix, that wasn't a thing. No. They were called compilation tapes. Anyway, it's about compilation tapes or mixtapes. And, okay, so I started reading it. I thought, oh, this is good. And, you know, the artwork is beautiful and uh, it's quite poignant. And she talks about lots of great records from that time. But as the book goes on, it becomes a book much more about the eternal triangle of creativity, response to creativity, and the anxiety which produces it. And actually, it, it's tremendously moving in terms of some of Pierre's account of her own breakdown and the role that being a creative person both played in that and helped her recover from. And I, I was really struck by how unusual it is, not so much to read that in a graphic format, though I suppose it is, but to read something of such emotional intelligence in relation to creativity and the creative impulse. And so if you're interested in what it takes to 
write a book or write a song or paint a picture and what part of you that comes from and the relationship between your ego and your id <laughs> who wouldn't be interested in that relationship <laughs> i think all the sad songs is a book that you would really really enjoy anyway i thought it was absolutely terrific i'm just going to read a little bit uh, although you can't see the picture so that's a bit strange <laughs> isn't it but i'm going to read the I'm gonna, you're going to have to take it on trust Acted that the pictures are very hands. beautiful expressive and funny and this is the beginning of part six, which is called The Last Tape. Summer Pierre is writing in the present here, and she says, This morning I've been listening to clips on YouTube from the documentary Alive Inside of Alzheimer's patients listening to music. Therapists have discovered that otherwise unresponsive patients animate and recover some cognitive abilities listening to favourite music from when they were young. It's powerful and moving to watch, and somehow it makes complete sense. Anyone who's been at a party or in a car, when an unexpected favourite song comes on, knows that there's a way music can awaken something in our bodies. I can remember being somewhere and hearing the psychedelic first song, Pretty in Pink. And for a moment, my body was no longer there. But back in the summer of 1986, in the lobby of the Island Theatre in Coronado, California, about to see Pretty in Pink, I could almost smell the popcorn. It is this capacity for music to trigger memory in the body that can also ruin certain soundtracks. I once knew a woman who couldn't listen to Exile in Guyville <laughs> by Liz Fair because it reminded her of her, of her boyfriend. And then there's a, <laughs> there's a, a light little uh, picture of the woman saying he used to put that album on every time we had sex. Now that's all I can think of when I hear Liz Fair. And Summer Pierre is thinking to herself, ah. What a terrible album to have sex to. Anyway, it happens, though, she writes on. You huddle around some song or album and gather an emotional light from it. But then time goes on and the experience shifts or changes, and so do the feelings and associations with that music. In Boston, I had used music so much to process pain that after a couple of years, my body started to associate that music with trauma and loss. And listening to music could bring on horrific anxiety attacks. So did playing guitar and attempting to write songs. This has to work. I tried to plough through it. I was like a junkie that couldn't accept that the high of loss didn't work anymore. So I just kept trying to force it and injuring myself more. And finally there came a point when I'd run out of ways to start over. And it seemed to me that it was all endings. And there was nothing left but how broken I was. So I ran. I did the ultimate start over. I packed up my car, I drained my bank account, and I drove across the country to move back to California. It's <laughs> great. So that is uh, All the Sad Songs by Summer Pierre. You can either buy that as a book or she's got a Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Summer Pierre, which it's available there as well. She's absolutely terrific and I commend it to you all. John Mitchinson, what have you been reading this week? Okay, so I've been reading uh, Aftermath by Pretty Tanager, who, former guest, she was on the brilliant episode on Beloved by Toni Morrison. And this book is published by And Other Stories uh, on the 7th of April. So when you're hearing this, it should be just published. And it is, I have to say, one of the most, I think, challenging, harrowing, brilliant books I've read in a long, long time. So the background to the story is that Pretty talked on a program uh, in in prisons called learning together and 
on November the 29th, 2019, there was a uh, an event at Fishmongers Hall in London, near London Bridge, to celebrate the five years of this programme of creative writing in prisons. And one of the po- people who attended there was uh, a man called Usman Khan, who had been um, a member of the programme when he was in prison. He was now out of prison. Anyway, the story is he, uh, he came to the event and at the end of the event he went down to the toilet and he uh, strapped two knives onto his hands, taped them to his wrists, uh, put on a fake bomb guest, came out and killed two of the people. He, he injured, I think, five people, but two of them fatally, Saskia Jones and Jack Merritt, both of whom were, were uh, part of the uh, Learning Together programme. Pretty had taught Usman Khan. Jack Merritt had overseen the programme that, uh, that she was teaching on. And as I said, he, the, the, the book really is an attempt to come to terms to unpack the horror of, of, of what happened on, on that day. And I have to say, you know, there's so many difficulties around this. She writes, this short book is about how a specific act of terrorist violence can shatter, rearrange and refocus us on what we've always known, what we think we know and what we choose to believe and what narrative rushes into those gaps. I think given the difficulty of the material, that people have died, that the, the trauma that she went through, the difficulty of even thinking about writing and the effect that writing has on people's lives, whether things could have happened differently. The, it's not... A, it, it, amazingly, what comes out of it is a kind of a hybrid. I wouldn't call it exactly a memoir. I wouldn't call it an, an analysis, although it has deep, profound dimensions of political analysis and personal memoir in it. It's a kind of a, a extraordinary. The, the the difficulty that she's that she's faced with means that she's almost created, I think, a new kind of nonfiction. It's full of quotes from other people, from other writers, from poets, from uh, from novelists. I mean, it really is an extraordinary book, and it's come with amazing quotes from Nikesh Shukla and Max Porter and uh, Mona Arshi. I'm just going to read a, t- a really small bit to to give you a flavour of the prose and then maybe just a couple of sentences from of, of pretty herself saying what she thinks the book is is to do so this is from somewhere near the beginning the first half of the book anyway this is not a confession this is not a testimony this is the moment before the frame is exposed this is a lament not for one but for many not yet born still There will always be a prison workshop where she taught story-making, inside that room. He, British-Asian, Pakistani, stroke other. He shared his literary knowledge in class. He worked at his writing. He said he read canonical novels. He said he had plans for work, for writing, for life after release. People saw his creative writing as a sign of rehabilitation even of possible de-radicalisation. It was simply that, like many, he valued the form, a conduit for control and self-expression, the art of convincing others, a version of his extreme drug. Now she doubts. Does making art, wanting to be an art maker, make anyone less likely to harm? It is possible to teach craft and yet to know that making art signifies nothing. 
except the human imperative to express a life force and to say, this is what I imagine, I know, I was there. Now we are here. Jack is dead and Saskia. And what comes now? Maybe he always meant everything he said and did and thought, all of it and all of the time, and at the same time until he made his final choice. Time is the worst punishment we can give, where death is not for us to inflict. Now we are left with it. Well, I taught him the effect of writing fiction. For example, without full stops. There is only silence, only loss. In the recognition of a history of splitting, there is radical shame, say doubt. The verdict is he always knew and always lied, which means his greatest skill was passing. He was a product of the state. That we can be both alive and dead at the same time, and while we are breathing, do we even know which is which? It's an amazing book. And she says this towards the end, which I think is, she said it's about radical doubt and radical hope, especially in the dark, as Rebecca Solnit calls it. And finally, about the fluid, shining faith, not in a God or in the edicts of any organised religion or institution, but in the necessary fiction we rest our contingent lives on, which in English we call trust. I mean, it's devastating in its analysis of the prison system and what prison does to people it's also devastating in its account of how do you how on earth do you begin to put your life back together when you've when you've been implicated in a mm. in a, a yeah. an act of terrorism that violent and that uh, and that unlikely and appalling so hugely recommended not an easy read but brilliant i think tell us what it's called it's called aftermath and it's by pretty teenager it's published by and other stories we'll be back in just a sec this is how she start a lot of restrictions to break your heart after 10 o'clock tenants must know my front door is locked and on the wall she stick up a notice no lady friends not even a princess and if you disagree out you go immediately and every monday mr gemmeran walk it in i got a send she telling me mr gemmeran well, you never believe what's happened, listeners. <laughs> Thanks to the magical power of Lord Kitchener uh, and singing My Landlady, we travel forward in time by week and we're all in the same room together. Hey. Hey, say something, everybody. We're all here. We're, here. we're all here together. We're all in here in the same place. It's a small room and we're all in it. <laughs> we were so far away and then the internet broke and so we decided to reconvene together. So we're talking about Andrew Sulky and we're talking about uh, his novel Escape to an Autumn Pavement and his poetry and uh, we're going to talk about his long poem Jamaica. But I think, Margaret, I would like to ask you first uh when did you can you remember when you met andrew selkie or the first time you heard his voice because he was a he was a real cultural presence wasn't he he certainly was i can remember i first met him in 1966 um in december because he interviewed me 
for a program on the BBC World Service. I can't remember the name of the program. It was something like London Echo. Because mm. I, I had just um, had an article published in the New Statesman and, and I was in the Evening Standard London's Diary. I was some sort of freakish, you know, African woman writing. Let's <laughs> <laughs> let's have a picture of her. And anyway, I'm just—it's a fabulously glamorous photo, though, Margaret. <laughs> it wasn't my car. Out. They made me sit on. <laughs> you literally sitting in the car. It's got, we'll try and put it on the website. It's got Margaret sitting on the bonnet of an E-type or something equally sixties-ish. <laughs> so that was when I first met Andrew, and it was also the sort of era in which I was beginning to set up a publishing company, Alison and Busby, and, you know, we stayed in touch from then on, and we had friends in common. For example, in 1966, actually, that was when the first black publishing company, New Beacon Books, was started by John LaRose. And Alison and Busby published the first titles in 1967. So we all became friends. In 1969, Jessica Huntley's Bogle Louverture started publishing so there was this little enclave of black pub black led publishers let's put it that way and we all became friends and and Andrew connected with us all and that I think that that was a connection that was very it was very strong between Andrew and Vogel Louverture mm. uh, uh, but he really was a support to everybody in in that that group and he he together with John LaRose was very instrumental in starting the Caribbean artists movement mm, yeah yeah so that that was you yeah. know my, my, my meeting Andrew dates back to as far as I can remember 1966 and Raymond when did you first uh read either Escape to an Autumn Pavement or Jamaica so to be honest the 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 first kind of presence of uh, Andrew's work was as the book, uh, Jamaica, an epic poem. Uh, my parents separated when I was really young and they lived separately. So they had separate bookshelves. But there were a handful of books in which they had the same copy of a, of, of a book, on a, you know, on their different shelves. And Andrew Sulky's Jamaica was one of those books. And so the kind of presence that the book had, just, just as an object, was like it was like a family photo you know it had that kind of presence about it I didn't read it until I was you know for another 20 years it was just there as but you, knew the, you sort of knew the spine it was part, I of, knew your, the spine. part of your childhood kind of right yeah. yeah yeah I knew the cover even the cover even is like a, a kind of golden golden sand color that color is exactly the same color. my dad had this huge uh like carved um sculpture of Africa and it, and so the book is exactly the same color as this sculpture. So so I have all of this kind of emotional, I suppose, resonance just That's with the object of Andrew Sulky's books. But then when I read the book, finally, I was overwhelmed, actually, because I didn't know what to make of it at first. It kind of goes between different times. It's like a history telling, and it's also a kind of folklore, and it's also a kind of witnessing an, an account of uh of you know of the island of, of jamaica and um it's not lyric poetry it's, it? it's, it's like it's, it's loads of things at the yeah, same time yeah. in terms of genre um i know that it took him i think uh, eric huntley recently told me i think it, he said 10 years to write you kind of writing it piece by piece but you know i reread it recently and i happened to 
to re to read it alongside a uh, Ursula Le Legrin short story. What it made me realize is it made me think of Andrew Sulky as a kind of wizard. <laughs> you know, as a kind of person who's trying to connect with, like, it's, it's ecological, it is historical, it is like um, anti colonial. And in the same way that I think Ursula Le Guin is, you know, it's, yeah. really, it's, a, ma- yeah, it's brilliant. about connecting to the land, to your people, to your culture, to your history, to your language. All of that simultaneously is happening throughout the entirety of, uh, well, of the poem. We're going to hear Andrew Sulky himself now talking to Henry Lyman in 1994 about, I think, one of the things that you're just talking about there, Raymond. You know, I haven't been there for years and years and years, but um, I I hear those sounds all the time. You know, when I lived in, in England, now that I live in, in the States, I hear those noises over and over again. And sometimes when it's very noisy where I am, I still hear those noises. <laughs> in the way that we are all the information we take in, the mixture of thoughts and ideas that weigh in on us as individuals. And these things are forever in motion. And you know why I tend to do this? Because it's the only way of what I would call filling in the distances, you see, from this point to that point, from the house that I, I used to live in, you know, to the sea that I ultimately had to cross, from those nurturing old beautiful voices of the early formation of my of myself as a human being, to these very new new voices um, in exile. Yeah, that's great. What a voice! Mm, the other is- thing is, Margaret. Now that is a man who is used to broadcasting more more <laughs> used to than we are <laughs> it's lovely to hear his voice he was such a wonderful broadcaster and he worked for the bbc a lot didn't he so he, he did yeah. his and caribbean was, voices is his right. yeah. program right and he supported a lot of writers who came through caribbean voices whether it's you know vs naipaul or sam selvon no, he was really a key character. There's an, an interesting bit. One of the, the other writers of that, that period, George Lamming, says this thing, which hadn't really struck me. This is in an, a, an essay of his called Ple- The Pleasures of Exile, which was um, published in 1960. And he says, The historical fact is that the emergence of a dozen or so novelists in the British Caribbean with some 50 books to their credit or disgrace and all published between 1948 and 1958 is in the nature of a phenomenon there has been no comparable event in culture anywhere in the British Commonwealth during that period. And you suddenly, I suddenly got that feeling of excitement. This, this is something is happening in the novel. I just wondered, Margaret, you were, you were kind of there at the time. Did you, <laughs> did you feel that excitement that Sulky and, uh, uh, and, and Roger Mace and, uh, and, and Sam Sullen and George Lambert, that, that there was this incredible kind of, explosion of Wilson Harris, explosion mm. of, 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 of Caribbean writing. I, I was there, though I was much younger than yeah. most of the people who were writing or, or even the other publishers who were there. So it was something that, I suppose, seeped into my consciousness. But also one of the things that I remember from that era is that m- most of these writers from the West Indies were being published in the educational series mm, of the yeah. British publishing world. So... They were really not being published for the British market. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Heinemann African Writers Series. Heinemann, yeah. Macmillan, yeah. All, all those imprints had, had 
you know, an educational bit, which was really for the colonies, I suppose. Um, and, and also a lot of them, the books that were published went out of print. For example, you, you mentioned George Lamming. I, I republished a lot of those yeah. books in the, in the 70s and 80s. C.L.R. James was another writer from that era who was out of print completely. So they were there and the excitement was there and, and we knew, those of us who were interested, knew that they were there and they should be read. But it, it took a while, I think, for it to seep out into the sort of general consciousness. I mean, I borrowed a copy of The Emigrants by Lamming from the library last year, and I can't believe that that isn't in print. That should, that, I mean, I know we talk about things that should be in print. That really well, should be in print well, as right. a that's historical, why, cultural... Well, exactly. I mean, we're, we're, I mean, going, we're going to be saying that, I'm, I'm telling you, about so Jamaica, books, because yeah. it's, it's yeah. insane that a, that a poem of this, this quality isn't in print. Well, Escape to an Autumn Pavement, which is the novel that we're, we're, what we're talking about, I'll read you the blurb in a second, um, but it's very much in the tradition of the Hampstead bedsitter. Uh, not, not the Hampstead novel, the Hampstead bedsitter novel. That's a very different uh, category of um, society. And um, here, in fact, we've got a clip of George Lamming talking to Hugh Weldon, <laughs> on on monitor on monitor in 1960 about that very topic george lamming 33 years old the life of a big city suits his temperament argumentative engrossed by ideas he's at home in london and enjoys the company of what he calls the hampstead sink talkers the terror of of, of not knowing and of not even daring to call upon a single soul among the hundred who surround him I think that is the initial experience of the West Indian arriving. However tough he is, for the first time in his whole experience, he is alone. Um, But one of the things that one um, must establish is that this world of isolation is not only different, it's strange. Because what he realises is that this attitude towards him is an attitude which the English themselves share towards each other. Yes. This business of leaving each other on their own is a national characteristic, as dancing is, yes. or laughing. And quite, quite different from anything that happens in the West Indies. This is why it is so different. Yes. You get settled, and then you too become part of the strangeness. Today, for example, I really don't like being spoken to when I'm travelling in the train. <laughs> well, to be fair, who does? <laughs> so I'll just read the blurb from the original Hutchinson edition of... Escape to an Autumn Pavement, and then maybe we could say a little bit about that book, about our experience of reading that novel now, 60 years after it was published. So this, is, Margaret, what you were saying about how were these books published? Here is the, and I will ask you as a publisher to pass judgment on this blurb. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew Salkey's powerful first novel, was published by New Authors Limited. Escape to an Autumn Pavement, his second book, deals with the impact of London life on a middle-class Jamaican, Johnny Sobert. Johnny has been encouraged to believe that London is, quote, that big cinema of a city where trees are banks and money plus freedom is as easy to come by as leaves on an autumn pavement. He rents an attic room in a Hampstead boarding house, in an Hampstead boarding house, very correct, where he soon (laughs) discovers that he has exchanged one middle-class miasma for another. Miasma, miasma, everyone. <laughs> we love it. So fast, top, top. Johnny rebels. In his struggle, he encounters the suffocating lust of Fiona, that suffocating <laughs> lust, and the subtler, disturbing attraction of Dick. 
fucking name. <laughs> Mr. Selkie is a highly original writer. His characters are astringent and refreshing, and he has a shrewd grasp of the amorphous English snobberies. It is stimulating to find a West Indian fiction hero wrestling with a problem like his own sexuality instead of being buried exclusively in the problems of his colour and his exile. Hmm. What do we think? I think the blurb writers worked very hard at that. Hmm. I think they, I think that's pretty forward thinking. <laughs> and that's good. It's good, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, right? that's good. It's, that's good. it's a terrific blurb and, and gets to the heart of why this book is, is interesting because I think that most of the books to some degree or other of, the, of, of that generation do deal with issues of, of exile and race but sexuality is 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 less obvious Ray, mm. what did you think what did you make of escape to an autumn pavement when you read it oh man there's you know there's a lot i loved about the book um i could clearly see that it was written by a poet you know mm -hmm. i could the, the 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 voice the conciseness um I felt like there were, look, in in some ways, like this this genre of of poetry, sorry, of of literature, is a is again a personal one for me in the sense that Andrew Sulky is around the same age that my dad was, and my dad wasn't someone who was very forthcoming, and so I feel like I got to know so much about him through actually the literature of people like Andrew Sulky and George Lamming and. CLR James because my dad would have read the same books that Andrew Sulky read he would have had the same references he would have had the same um even like similar transgressions you know so so even that is in the book I loved that I came back to the UK and I happened to be sitting on Tottenham Court Road and when I read the first half of the book where there and then I'm, I'm and I'm seeing some of the references you know the, the roads like oh wait it's around the corner from where I am right now you know I get a real kind of buzz and joy from being in a a, a literary landscape becomes a real one mm -hmm. and so this book Escape to an Autumn Pavement you know really places me in in some of my own personal history I think that the issue of like i suppose fiona and johnny and that kind of thing mm -hmm. is is like i don't think fiona is actually a person i think <laughs> fiona is a projection yeah. from yeah. johnny as a colonial subject interesting and i think that's, that's interesting. you know in a way that's a dehumanizing obviously of the woman in 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 this but i don't think i just don't think it's um yeah, I don't think she's there actually as a character in her own right. I feel like she's she's a projection, and there's a lot of projections yes, throughout the book, and and a lot of kind of internalized pain and hatred and and discomfort. You know, everyone seems to have it and and projecting it all over the place in the novel. That's what I mean. I think there's a real complexity in this novel, and uh, absolutely, which doesn't discussion. really get resolved. No, exactly, <laughs> it doesn't. It's it, it's 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 not. It's not a masterpiece, but it is really interesting. Yes, it? yeah, that's I, fair. I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm gonna say the two things. My two observations were, apart from how much I enjoyed it, because this is very much in my um, wheelhouse. Sixties bed sit. That's my. That's my. You say personal connection. That's yeah, my yeah, personal connection. I, so I love that element of it. And Margaret, it reminded me of a book that we've already mentioned because you've published it. It so reminded me of Absolute Beginners by Colin McInnes. 
it, and it seems to me clearly, John, it, it, it felt that it had been written fast. Yeah. Not much revision, I reckon, in this novel. True. I think, get it down. True. Do you think, Ray? Yeah, there's I'd like totally there's some of the things you're talking about. It smokes off the page. The, yeah. the, the, the anger and the and totally. the, the, the. I mean, as you say, it's the dialogue. It's not really dialogue because yeah. Fiona just gets to say, "Give it to me. I love you. Give me more." <laughs> and, yeah. But but he is in his head. He's this yeah. roiling kind of. We'll, we'll read some bits from it just to yeah. give people a flavour. But it, boy, it's it's. I mean, it's an exciting book. It's an exciting book to read. I think. Margaret, Andrew could write in many different registers, couldn't he? He was was a prolific writer, full stop. I mean, he must have written, you know, three dozen books in so many different genres. Kids' books. Children's books, as you say, poetry, novels, travelogues. um, Books on communism as well, non-fiction books about the... Missile crisis, Cuban right, missile crisis, yeah. and, yeah. He, and he was an anthologist. He, you know, was an editor. Yeah, yeah. He, he collected I mean, other people's writings. So he was. He obviously did write fast. Mm. He, he had to write fast. Have produced so much, and I think that. Well, I, I, I connect as well with that personal thing and the localities because I, when I was at university in the sixties, I lived in a hostel in Hampstead. <laughs> <laughs> did you? <laughs> And and also and, and that crossover between the sort of Bohemia and the sort of Colin McInnes type thing and, and and the Caribbean community, which also happened in West London, and I I, I lived in Notting Hill um, after I um, graduated, and and Andrew was just round the corner. Um, he lived in Moscow Road, and I remember that same connection when I first read, for example, The Lonely Londoners by Samuel Selvon. And seeing a reference to where I lived in that book, Linden Garden. So it's, it's very powerful when you can make those personal connect, connections, isn't it, Ray? And, and sort of identify with some of the, the environment as well as the, the, the people who Andrew has created as projections or, or real people. But he was a brilliant writer. I feel like I've followed in your footsteps from like Bexhill to Hampstead. <laughs> 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 um, if you asked him, Silly question, really, but if you asked him, what are you? Are you a broadcaster? Are you a poet? Are you a novelist? What What is he most likely to have said? Because, as you say, he was very prolific and um, working in all sorts of areas, journalism, the radio, children's books. I've got one of them here, which I read, called Hurricane, mm-hmm. yeah. which was still in print from Puffin into the 70s and 80s. It was terrific. It was really great. And nothing like... Escape to an autumn pavement, no. and nothing like Jamaica. They're, yeah. they're... And, and, and autumn pavement's nothing like his first novel, yeah. A Question of Violence, which is yeah. set in Jamaica and is, is historical and yeah. very different style. So, different style. And that yeah. may be one of the reasons why he's not better known, that he was not, you know, you couldn't pigeonhole him. And I'm, I'm not sure that he would have, what label he'd have put on, on himself, because he was, he was a very supportive person. Yeah, he supported right. other people as writers, as publishers, or, or you know, as I said, he interviewed me. So he was being very, and and he he went on to become a, an academic, a teacher of creative writing, and so on. So he was working on so many different levels in so many different ways, and he was always meticulous in everything he did, and even his handwriting was. Meti- I used to think uh, I didn't see him doing it, but I, maybe he wrote with a ruler underneath. Because his look, this is this is. <laughs> Oh yeah, look. Oh, wow. <laughs> there is that's his... so neat. His we're, hand. We're looking that's... at an inscribed <laughs> copy of his book of poems, Away, and which Margaret. Can published. I read this out, Margaret? It sure, is yeah. Margaret's copy of Away, poems by Andrew Selkie, which she published. Yeah. 
for admirable Margaret with love, Andrew. <laughs> the poet's choice of word there. But it's so neat, isn't it? It's beautiful. I think we should hear from Andrew himself again. What I found very interesting about that blurb that we read out was the idea that they wanted to say he's in exile, but he doesn't only write about exile. And clearly Jamaica is of a piece with that. So let's hear his thoughts on that topic. We are exiled. Or most of us are. I mean, I think that the state of the state of being born is um, is exile. You know, it's um, as soon as you leave the mother and the father, uh, you leave that state of babyhood. You really do find yourself at sea. Um, the alienation that I I sense. Uh, in what has happened to us West Indians in terms of our economics and our politics and so on. I find that it's essentially a part of that alienation, spiritual desolation. Um, it's not a very happy state to be in, really. You know, you know he... he... We're, we're saying that the writing has different types of energy depending on what it is, but actually there's a sort of vein of melancholy running through it, I think. Melancholy and agriculture, I think, are two <laughs> things that run through everything he writes. He's always writing about the land and, and, and weather, actually. Yeah, like, yeah it's a lot of know, weather. A lot of conditions, like a natural mm. elements. So, I mean, I think, I think he's actually an ecological writer, an ecological thinker, which is another reason why I think he deserves more time in the in the sun and hard to pigeonhole hard again to pigeonhole, right? totally totally and i think like i think to this day um black writers marginalized writers have to fight this kind of you know this uh this idea that like if, if we're writing in a way that's like can be sociological therefore it's not serious you know there's a there's a real i i, I keep noticing that even in some ways that i've seen my own work spoken about. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. It, there's a, a recognition of, a, a, I guess, sociological value, but not of literary merit, oh, you know, or not of like literature, capital L literature. And um, I think Andrew Sulky must have been someone who resisted even um, needing that kind of validation. Yeah. And just you no, know, like a visionary in that sense. And was like, okay, I'm just going to be open to the energy and write the books which I need to write and that energy is going to come from me that's what you were talking about Margaret in terms of how these books were published as well so they're they're okay off in their little ghetto but how do we how do we break them out into the mainstream of literature and it's an ongoing process I'd like to know actually I'm not meant to be asking the question I'd like to know how Andrew has influenced you Ray in terms of what you write on. Yeah, great question. Yeah, I mean, Andrew, Andrew Sulky's work has given me great permission. He has given me a path to not compartmentalise my interests and my passions. So I am interested in, obviously, history and travel. I am interested in language and the Caribbean and Europe. I am interested in socialism and humanitarianism and social justice. And clearly, Andrew Sulky's work did not stop on the page. It has manifested itself in such a powerful way that 
when I, I got my, I did my first fellowship, no, my second fellowship as a poet in, in the US in uh, Pittsburgh University. And my mentor was an American poet called Robin Coase Lewis, a genius poet. And, uh, you know, we're talking, we're talking, we're talking. And I casually mentioned something about Andrew Sulky. And she said, oh, that, that was my teacher. <laughs> and then I came back to the UK and uh, I happened to, you know, as you do, like talking with Linton Quincy Johnson, da, 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 da. Linton Quincy Johnson as well. I was like, oh yeah, he was my first teacher. It's like, what? You know, then one of my favorite poets, Martin Espada, a Puerto Rican poet, love his work. Martin Espada was a uh, immigration lawyer as well as a poet, I suppose. And um, I was reading something about him completely randomly. And he just kind of said, yeah, Andrew Sulky was my teacher, my mentor. He's, he's everywhere. He's incredible out there, you know, and the fact that he is even part of the journeys of the poets who, you know, who, who inspire me is, is, is mysticism to me. Paul Mendes in his essay on Radio 4, which you can hear on the iPlayer, says that he first encountered Sulky in an, an, an exhibition. There was a, he was in a photo with yeah. a, a very symbolic photo with... Horace Ove and a couple of other writers. And, and um, Mendes was going, but who's that guy? He's, he's in all these photos. Yeah. Who is it? Yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of Sulky's blessing and curse, maybe. Yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the poetry. We'll kick off by hearing Sulky himself reading one of his poems. This is called Drifting. For whom do I speak now so far away from home? For whom do I write now, so far away from myself? I speak for the experience of the flux I've become. I write for the concrete to fill in the distances from the house on the road I lived on, from the warm home on the sea I crossed, from old voices to the new. And I suppose that's true to some extent, of shipping oneself far away from port, finding oneself while drifting. As I say, first, the first-rate poem delivered by a first-rate broadcaster <laughs> who knew how to use the microphone. That's so good. It is, it is. Um, Margaret, do you have a favourite from the collection that you published? Yeah, uh, well, that, that was in the collection. It was, I published, it was. So, I mean, the, the, but... Every time I, I reread any of the poems, th th there's always something new, and there, there are there are many of them that uh, resonate still. I, I don't know where to start. What would I choose? Okay, it opens at the page with this poem. Oh, this isn't appropriate. This is a poem called "Looking Back," and it's for Jessica Huntley. Jessica was the co-founder of Bogle Louverture, who was who published Andrew's work, and Andrew was the, direct, that, the director of the company. He was just so supportive of Jessica mm. and, and the company. So I can understand why he dedicated this poem to her. I can't understand why we beat the sea with our island pain and aspiration. I can't understand why we deny ourselves our sea-locked gold reserves, stacked high in the hills, platted deep in this land. The truth is, I'm beginning to know why all the eyes in our mirror are turned north and northeast. Isn't it really because we haven't looked at the art of our lives in the cloud and curve of our breath prints? 
That was the poem looking back. I, I'm not a very good reader, but no, it's... oh, come on, for shame. <laughs> was, it's not as beautiful. Good as Andrew, that's for sure. It's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, that. I just want to reiterate those last lines. We haven't looked at the arc of our lives in the cloud and curve of our breath prints. Yeah. Mm. I mean, it's interesting going back to your question, Andy. It feels to me that I mean, I, I'm, maybe I'm kind of biased, but he was a poet. I mean. In his deepest kind of core, he, I think he was a poet. And that's what makes Jamaica so exciting to me because he's doing something in that book which seems incredibly ambitious, which is to tell the story of the Caribbean, not in, as I say, that, that there are some, he's a beautiful lyric poet and many of the poems in a way are great. But this is a kind of public, almost sort of telling of folklore, mythological, historical and a huge ambition, I think. Yeah. An incredible technique. Yeah. Well, we're going to get um, Ray to read us a bit of Jamaica in a minute, but I'm going to read what I consider to be a poem yes. from <laughs> Escape to an Autumn Pavement. And I'd like to cross-reference this, listeners. Go back to our Absolute Beginners episode <laughs> and find the passage that I read from Absolute Beginners, which is a late night scene in Soho, which is one of the most beautiful bits of writing. And here's Sulky's version of something very similar from early on in Escape to an Awesome Pavement. 10.30 in Oxford Street with its squeaking silences under shutters. Wonderland beacons continue their ogling unashamedly with the traffic lights. Sticky, biscuit, sweet, soggy lovers huddle together in a make-believe which excludes mom and pop can feel the presence of cash registers along the street. Mania for presences. But this is different. The moment is magic. The weightiness is different. It's haunting. Metallic Buddha kind of weightiness. Plump and couchant in a way. A threat. Hundreds of presences on both sides of the street. Yet it's always a joy to know that they're out of action and are unable at the moment to make it off you to suck you in and spit you out minus your bus fare. Doesn't really matter, does it? They'll catch you early Monday morning just the same. Catch you with their pre-national service male attendants and pimply salesgirls, their thin, grubby, late-night collars and cigarette-stained forefingers. They'll catch you with brisk American-style sales patters salted intermittently with brash cockney aplomb. And who doesn't really want to be gurgling inside when you say, look at this, my dear, Selfridges for 9 and 11 would have had to pay anything up to 12 and 6 along Regent Street. And of course, you've already docked 2 and 7 off the 12 and 6 merely to feel nice and warm inside, haven't you? That's beautiful. Actually, you know what? That, that, that steps up a level when you read it aloud. That's very interesting. That, that, um, um, isn't it? Doesn't it? Isn't that? Isn't that really the, You can hear the internal rhythms much more clearly. Well, we're going to hear from Andrew Salki again, talking about uh, in a minute, talking about some of his poetry. But I think we should move on to Jamaica in earnest. Ray, what is this poem stroke book about? So it's a <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> Got me. <laughs> you know any any any. <laughs> If that question posed at any worthwhile poetry is is, is going to be it's like, the, it's like the Woody Allen thing about <laughs> war and peace. It's about, it's about Russia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, 
I see it as a kind of channel. It's a kind of sustained emotional meditation by a soothsaying, timeless wizard. Mm. I love that. Well done. That does answer my question. <laughs> I think you should have read the blurb of the first Do you, edition. Can you read this, the blurb on the first edition, Margaret? Yeah. Oh, I'll read, read, read it. it. Yeah, please. This says, this is a poem about Jamaica, about the experience of the slave trade and of colonization, and about a struggle for freedom and for identity, which still rages today among Caribbean peoples. It deals with political issues, but is not simply a political poem. Rather, it conjures up the swirling colours, the music, the moods, the atmosphere of a bustling, suffering, vital island community. Jamaica has been 20 years in the writing and is the very first poem of its kind published by a Jamaican writer. That mm -hmm. was in 1973. Wow. And it has that thing, doesn't it, where time, that's what I love about it, is all these time periods. Yeah are coexisting it's it does that that which you kind of can only do with poetry yes. it would be difficult to make this into fiction yes. um, so I, there are leaps through time from section to section in the poem ray i found it a fascinating mixture of challenging mm -hmm. and compulsive mm. that i really struggled with some of the early sections yeah. but i kept being pulled through it and feeling that he he needed me to get somewhere with him there's a real urgency to it yeah i don't know if you if you pick that up or whether your your reading experience was different the first yeah time. no no it, it did pick it up because the one of the in terms of the structure all the way through um short line high kind of energy high lyric so you're compelled to just keep reading because the language it tumbles over itself and it even goes in and out of dialect and conversation like he brings in his family he talks to his aunt he talks to you know his neighbors and and then it goes into like what almost textbook history language when it comes out of that into patois and it's quite dated in 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 some of those ways some of some some of the patois you know, even that isn't wouldn't probably wouldn't be recognizable to to modern day Jamaican society. Some of it, you know, which I know goes back to that thing I was saying about how this book, to me, as well as as well as a, an incredible, compelling poem, was just as an object. It survived. It's sustained. It's here. It's out of print. But I feel like <laughs> I feel like I really want to be one of the people to bring it back. Who knows. But I, a bit like we were saying about The Emigrants by George Lamming, I read this and thought, well, this, this should be in print. There's a, a literary and societal need for this to be available for people to read. Just, just with my publishing head on, you know, Monique Roffey's uh, Mermaid of Black Conch, is, which is, a, I think, a, a, a great novel and it's a massive bestseller. And you think if you want, if you want to put some context from the culture that, yeah. that, that this is coming from, this is this is one of the. That's true. It feels to me like one of the great texts of 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 you know with, with I mean I'm I'm not an expert on Caribbean poetry, but it's this the fact that this isn't available and talked about. I think it tells you something about the the the, the publishing yeah. climate and why why things are let allowed to go out of print and why they're brought back into print. Well, I I did want to ask you the question, Margaret, when you were starting uh, Alison and Busby. 
I mean, did you have a clear mission to want to try and spring? Because you published all kinds of books that you didn't want to to be publishing into a ghetto. You wanted to spring, uh, you know, black writers uh, uh, into the mainstream. You, well, it, was, it wasn't anything as conscious as that. We were publishing books well, that we thought were interesting. Brilliant. It should be in print. And that's why, you know, George Lamming is out of print. OK, let's reprint George Lamming. Let's reprint C.L.R. James. Let's let's reprint Colin McInnes. Let's, you know. Well, Reprint American writers. Yeah. You know, it was. It was taste really taste by t- taste and quality and. It was naivety, perhaps, <laughs> <laughs> or idealism, but it was. It was not um, based on any sort of convention or any. You, know. you were making up your own rules. I exactly. Think. Yeah. Exactly. Well, because four of the rare surviving copies of Jamaica are gathered in this room with us. <laughs> I, Sorry. What I like is about the fact that I've, I think this must be Andrew's copy because it's got It's got some very neat annotations and oh, handwriting. Wow. Look Isn't at that. Okay, I'm going to need to see that. Isn't that incredible? Wow. It's um, different from our edition, uh, right? Yeah. Like, yours has got the corrected yeah, We've got the line. corrected, yeah. So, uh, because people can't easily get hold of this, um, Ray, would you share... Uh, a passage that you feel is it's hard isn't it representative is hard but yeah a, a well, just you good. like part, part of the journey <laughs> you what I'll do is I'll read this and just you know this is I'm just dropping you in to uh, the moment and the momentum of this epic poem there was that spark that moved the land that rumbling shifting accustomed response while you Knowledgeable, patient, watched the pelican rip breast to belly. Ex maker, provident, paradoxical, poor child of a thousand loves, Caribbean, leaping levitator, muscle to prize up the granite structure out of our weaker streams, elegant, maternal, instead of making us burn in the dry lands of failure, day after day, instead of that alternative, lose the peak deep inside you, Caribbean, victim of careless systems, absorber of blows, hear the cry from Diablo's bedrock, from the brutally shaved heads crowding our festering tenements, soon to be planned for, soon to be bulldozed, Caribbean, prepare a path, soon your scorpion times will be sucked in by someone's passing interests or other than spat out again, a step nearer and another banner's stab, the breaking of newer milestones. Soon, names like Penn and Venables would be with the new course of conquest, run rivers everywhere through your shell-marked yards. So, you know, you know. I'm saying it now. We've got what we've got to do is to is we've got to fund a, you doing an, an audio version of the whole. Oh, yeah. I'll do it. <laughs> I mean, honestly, but really, great though. idea. Because suddenly, as you said earlier, Andy, suddenly you see what this part that really just it, it catches fire. It's, yeah, yeah. Can you give us another bit? Another bit. Yeah, oh, cool. I'm actually. Wow. You've got an uncle. Do the hurricane bit if you want to do that. I mean, right. I, I, I'm, I'm not reading from it now. I can tell you. I that. mean, <laughs> no way. I know I mean, my limitations. Okay, um, I'm, I'll, I'll try this one. I haven't really practiced this one out, but yeah. Okay, so so um, this is a little section, and it's called Hurricane 1951. I remember the night. Black with slack rain, flaccid when it first began, 
but with brick drops beating later on like jump poco drum bumps beating back the coming morning beating with purpose routine rhythm and ritual beating like the bounce of batter hide hide battered or a shoemaker's block batter hide hide battered pain shattered shattered pain batter hide pain shattered through to dawn one bad sneaking breeze blow take time and creep up on Giorgio life and tear him shirt tail like bud feather Brock him one room in two, like true stick, kill him common law wife, kill him fart for goat, kill him lying, lying, <laughs> lying hen them, and go away soft, soft like teeth, like it wasn't causing no butters, instead the land at all, at all. So what you happen, what's happening in this is so even um, just like con <laughs> concrete, so yeah. you can it see the shape of the poem is, is also like a hurricane. It is concrete. It's amazing. You yeah. know, it's all this stuff. You so know, they, what you we've know. done, we've done very well keeping Batlisted going for the last two years, <laughs> doing it on the internet. But I can tell you now, there is nothing no. more spine tingling than sitting in a room with someone reading one of their favourite things with the just the level of commitment you just did there, Ray. What a beautiful amazing. moment! Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah. Oh. Wow. Well, it seems right that we uh, hear from the man himself again. This is a, a poem that I couldn't find anywhere, which I think is called The Tourists. So it may have been written later in his career. Uh, and uh, he gives it a little introduction here, which I, which I found very um, illuminating. This is Andrew Sulky talking about and then reading The Tourists. My island has always for me, being a tourist island. I used to find it difficult to take holidays. Don't know why, but somehow I, I resented the holiday that we offered to others and not to ourselves. As a child, I would see lots of cameras and shorts and pretty shirts and so on. You know, people wanting to take a picture want to manage you, however briefly. They want to arrange you and prettify you and so on. The trees were thin and scarred. February Fildyke had knocked them about. They seemed on the teeter of disappearing before spring. The family, who stood in front of the split bark of the ravaged trees, was battered and tired of making do on stale air and stone promises from the bullies in the capital city. They, in turn, had lashed themselves to northern prongs and were themselves bullied in return. The tourists took photographs while talking trees and weather and rocks to the family. They talked high fluting and the family stood on the slant, gaunt, loose-limbed. It was talk that was accurately space-filling it was slippery, swerving away from politesse into condescension. It was something like Punic faith that the tourists had offered the family, and no doubt the tourists felt like traitors to ordinary human concern. They clicked away fiercely, as though they had deadlines, as though the family and the trees and the weather and the rocks 
or assigned symmetry property. I found this episode totally fascinating to prepare, Margaret, because I thought we were going to talk about one set of things and the presence of the work and the presence of his voice has led us to talk about a different set of things, which is really lovely, spontaneous moment. I mean, if you, if you were to recommend a good starting point to Andrew Sulky or his work, is there one strand of it that you prefer or should you just kind of throw yourself in? I think perhaps I resonate mostly with his poetry, but I, I think he was such a good writer of every kind. So he, he's written books that were excellent travelogues, Havana Journal. So he, he, I would say anytime you can find a book by Andrew Salkey, read it and you'll find <laughs> something that will inspire you, nurture you, help you keep going. In fact, one of, one of the phrases that I always associate with Andrew, he was to sign his letters off, was keep on keeping on. Mm. And his work, to me, helps me do just that. Well, People Tree Press uh, have got quite a few of his books in print. I've actually got one at home which I didn't bring with me called Riot. Have you got that? Oh, I've not So that's that another children's book. Yeah. About, and clearly the, his four children's books are based on things that happened to him growing up. The hurricane, yeah. the riots in so yeah. I, I, you know, I'm really looking forward to reading that. Ray, what's the best way to get hold of his work at the moment? I mean, um, coming round uh, your house and <laughs> <laughs> coming by my house and sitting on my sofa and yeah, be patient while I dig them all out. <laughs> um, you know, I really value libraries and our libraries, so I did actually look up on a couple of library catalogues just out of curiosity to see if they stock his books. Senate House had a few copies. So here's the thing, right? I was talking about bookshops and access. My even, so my parents got Andrew Sulky's books in a shop, which is no longer there, a black radical bookshop, which was in Hackney called Centerprise. And this bookshop, you know, as a kid, they would walk in and they might see Gene Binter Breeze, and they might see George Lamin, or they might see, I don't know, someone traveling, um, coming in, they might see, uh, you know, Margaret Busby, you know, we might see anyone there, Eric and Jessica Huntley, like it was like a home, it was like a hub. And I've got a few memories of, you know, standing in that shop and just people, you know, just walking in and out and the conversations that were happening. And um, spaces like that weren't, weren't protected, they're gone. Some libraries are stocking them um but i think we just need we need more demand people don't know what they're missing no i think that's that's the thing isn't it and that's the thing about the you're saying about books going out of print margaret when when they go and they disappear it needs publishers to bring them to bring them, bring back. them back so congratulations to people tree for doing that with oh brilliantly no use you complain you're wasting your time you talking in vain because when she get her fees, she couldn't care less if you vex her, please. And the rent is all on the level, four guineas for single or double. Boys, that landlady bad, she was them the landlord from Trinidad. And every Monday, Mr. Give me rent. All that I try, I cannot prevent, she telling me. Mr. Give me rent. <laughs> 
So thanks so much for joining us today, Margaret. Is there anything, is there any message you would like to leave people with that we didn't say about Andrew or Andrew's work or him as a person or...? I, I am just so thrilled that he was a part of my publishing career as well as a friend. And I, here we are in Soho and I can remember my office was round the corner for 20 years and Andrew came to visit us there. So, you know. So we sat, we gathered together in a room and we've read his work and we've celebrated his life. It feels very good, doesn't it? That feels like a good thing to have done to the ceremony. So. Ray, is there anything left for you that you would like to say about Andrew? About Andrew, I just want to say thank you. You know, give thanks. I'm very much part of his, you know, lineage. Uh, I feel blessed to have got to spend time with his work, you know, and, and to share share that on Backlisted. I just want to say that Backlisted has a, has a bit of a, a soft spot with me because um, when, I've, when I discovered it, um, you were talking about so many books that were on my mum's very obscure bookshelf. You know, I, and I wasn't part, like growing up, even though both my parents, you know, they were fairly literary, but outside of the household, I didn't really have much kind of literary culture, I suppose. So I'd be reading all of these books kind of in private. And it wasn't until finding your podcast, Backlisted Podcast, that I was able to kind of revisit and rethink and refeel actually about um, so many different of those books that I pulled off my mum's bookshelf from you know, Malcolm Lowry, I, uh, you know, um, um, Ian Fleming and uh, Beryl Gilroy and Robert M. Piercig and Herman Hess. Um, it's just countless. It's actually pretty, again, another kind of mysticism to me, how much of your books that you've covered and spoke about on this podcast are on my mother's bookshelf. <laughs> so, so I just want to well, say thank want, you, thank you, yeah, and we want amazing. and we want to thank her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks to Ray's mum for. The, yeah, it's the amazing the, book, the books that last. The yeah. books that last. Yeah. Thanks very much, Ray. Thanks, Margaret, and um, we are going to leave you with our theme music, and then it seems only right that the last voice you'll hear will be Andrew Selke's, uh reading his poem. After reading, there is a truth more ancient than. Eden. Um, so see you next time, everybody. Yeah, and thanks, thanks, guys. Thanks so much. I like your way of seeing the flux and rush of everything as a sure way of seeing clearly everything there is to see. I really do. As a flood man myself, born just below your house, in a house like yours, I'm sure you know I understand your way. It's mine too. But my thing's been rushed off centre, my living years away from home, by seeing everything in bits and pieces, not as the whole you know you see yours as, flooding along the freeway, in name only, making it all seem logically yours and bearable. Yet I do know your way. I think I know it well, like the inevitable downpour from the hills, the yes and no of everything we live through. I like your way of seeing if it. If you prefer to listen to I like it just without adverts, I had treasured up, up myself. Patreon.
and made it all my own, living forward slash backlisted. Absurdly as well as getting the home. show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisted, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight. 